I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, California fire season is upon us. And the question is how much we've done as a state to make sure we don't have a repeat of the catastrophic disasters of 2017 and 2018. We're going to be joined by two of our lead wildfire reporters, Curtis Alexander and Peter Fimright, to talk about what's changed and what hasn't. First up, Curtis Alexander. Curtis Alexander, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Damien. You're someone who usually responds to fires for us up and down the state. Um, Curtis, what kind of fire season can we expect after these two terrible years? Well, Damien, this fire season could be a particularly difficult one. At least that's what the fire experts are saying. Already we had that heat wave just a couple weeks ago. You'll remember temperatures in San Francisco were approaching 100 degrees. And there were a few hundred fires that week across the state. These weren't big fires. They were pretty small, maybe a couple acres or more. But it showed just how much combustible material there is across the California landscape this year. We had a very wet, rainy winter, and that's created an overgrowth of fuels that are ripe for burning. Yeah, I was surprised to see the red flag warnings so early because we had had that rainstorm uh, really late in the year. Yeah, at the lower elevations, you tend to see the fires first. Uh, Even last year, as we were talking about earlier, you saw some fires in July, the big fire up in Redding, the car fire, and you saw the Ferguson fire in late July as well up in Yosemite. So fires can begin earlier in the season. The National Interagency Fire Center, though, is saying that the real potential for risk is going to come later in the year once the hills and valleys begin to dry out maybe late September or rather late August, early September, that's when we could see some real big fires if we have the warm weather and the winds like we've had in recent years. Yeah. And of course, that's when we saw the the big fires in the wine country two years ago and uh, up in Butte County in Paradise last year. Um, I do want to, what I want to do is I want to have uh, you and, and Peter Fimright, your colleague, run through some of the biggest issues that the state is facing this year in trying to stop another terrible year. Um, But before we get to that, I want to ask you, how much is global warming driving um, these fire seasons, uh, particularly in the last two or three years? That's a really good question, Damien. These fire seasons are taking place against a backdrop of climate change, and climate scientists are saying that the fire seasons are getting longer, our droughts are becoming more intense, and the amount of land that burns each year is increasing and it's going to increase. So we're on a dangerous trend and the odds that the fire season is going to be worse are only increasing. So can we say for sure whether any um, given fire is driven by climate change? You can't really say that one fire was caused by climate change or one hurricane or one tornado or anything like that. But climate change has created conditions for this more variable weather. Certainly in the West, it's made the landscape more arid. It's raised temperatures. Fire is just more likely to happen now. Gotcha. Well, let's get to some of these uh, some of these questions. Uh, the article that you and Peter Fimright and some other reporters worked on was about how much has changed uh, given the catastrophes that we've seen. Um, how much is the state and local government responding to the crisis? So we wanted to run through some of the bigger issues. Let's start with forest management. You've written a lot about it. Uh, the president has weighed in on it. Um, Where are we in terms of of the forests 
and um, and making sure that they are thin to the point where maybe we don't have the the bigger fires. Forest policy is something we've talked about for years, if not decades. We all know what the problem is, but we don't seem to be doing enough to fix it. You and I have discussed this at nauseum, and we know that the state has this policy of fire suppression instead of letting fires naturally burn, which helps clear out the forests. It rejuvenates the soil by adding nutrients. It regenerates the plants and trees and makes them stronger and less fire prone. We're putting out the fires, and that's created a dangerous buildup of brush and vegetation across California. The U.S. Forest Service and CAL FIRE, which are the two large wildland firefighting agencies in the state, are saying that they're going to reduce some of these fuels. In fact, when we spoke with them this year, they said they're going to try to do two to three times as much fuel reduction as they've done in past years. But the problem is there's just so much brush and fuel out there that they're only scratching the surface of the problem. A report from the governor's office has estimated that there are 15 million acres of forest in the state that need restoration. We'll be lucky if we do fuels treatment on a couple hundred thousand this year. And why not let fires burn? I mean, I, I, I'm guessing that it's because there's a lot of people that live out in those areas that have, have homes up dirt roads. and. Yeah, that's a really good point, Damien. Fires are perhaps the most effective way to restore the health of forests. They clear out the fuels and they make the plants and trees stronger. However, as you pointed out, people live in the state's wildlands and more people are building homes there. So you can't just take a match, toss it in the woods and let it burn. Instead, we have to surgically remove the trees, the fuels to try to temper the fire danger. And that's expensive and it just takes a lot of time. Yeah, that brings us to the other issue we want to discuss, which is building codes, which is uh, the government response in terms of how people should be building, where they should be building. Let's start with a a very fundamental question. Um, Should we be rebuilding communities in the woods and the forests that have been burned down? Theoretically speaking, it's probably a bad idea to build homes in high fire risk areas because fires happen. It's a natural part of the California ecology. However, as a practical matter, it's hard to tell people that they can't build on private land. This is their private property. This is their home. These are communities where they have family memories. You can't really say your house is burned down. You can't go back there. On top of that, we already have a housing shortage in California. It's not like people can move to the Bay Area where there's, at least to the cities, where there's less of a fire danger There's not enough homes here. People are going to want to build out this state. Okay, so what can we do in terms of things like building codes, in terms of of restrictions, in terms of somehow hardening uh, people's homes? Hardening homes is one of the best ways to prevent a home from going up in smoke and saving lives. California has among the strictest building codes in the nation, if not the world. New homes under the California Code have to have a number of fire safety features. You can't build roofs of made of wood. You can't have have you can't have decks that are made of wood. You have to have windows that are fire resistant. You have to put screens over attic vents and seals over garage doors so that embers don't get in the house and light them on fire. The problem is that the code started in 2008 and most of California's homes were built before 2008. And we haven't gone back and forced people to retrofit their homes. 
there are no requirements that people have to make the retrofits to their homes, and largely people have not. And that's just cost, I would imagine. Yeah, it is cost. I was up in Grass Valley last week talking to homeowners who live in a high fire risk area. And I talked to one woman who wanted to make her house fireproof. So she called in an expert. The fire expert came in, walked through her house and said, basically, you have a lot of windows. You should take out these old windows and put in double pane fire resistant windows. Well, she called the window company or the glass company, and they wanted $60,000 to retrofit the windows. And people just don't have that type of money lying around. Wow. Well, thanks, Curtis. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Damien. All right. When we return, uh, we're going to have another staff writer who covers wildfires for us, Peter Fimright. And we're going to discuss other big issues that the state is facing, uh, emergency alerts and how people get those when a fire breaks out. And we're also going to talk about PG&E's new preemptive shutoff plan, where they're actually going to be cutting power when they see the conditions are ripe for wildfires. Right after this. Here's my conversation with Peter Fimright on emergency alerts and PG&E's plan for power shutoffs. Peter Fimright, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. So, Peter, before we get to this year's fire season, I did want to ask you, you have some firefighting experience yourself, do you not? Yeah, I was a uh, U.S. Forest Service firefighter back in the day when I was in college. We won't say what years those were, but yeah, I had <laughs> and, some and fun. Where and, and where and why? Well, it was during uh, summers in, when I was in college, in, and uh, there were two crews in Chico, California, where I, you know, I was on various uh, years on uh, the Chico firecrackers and the Chico <laughs> firebreakers, and we traveled all across the western U.S. fighting fires. It was fun. So how did you end up with us? Well, uh, I went, at, went out and <clears throat> wanted to get a real job. Uh, <laughs> Journalism and actually broadcast communications was kind of my interest. I was interested in doing documentaries. And uh, so I went out and sought jobs and ended up at the Chronicle because I just, I don't know, I fell into it somehow. <laughs> wow. Well, we only hire the best and most expert in, uh, in every subject area. So thanks, Peter. I, I want to ask you about two issues today in the upcoming fire season. The first is emergency alerts. Um, everybody has been learning for the past couple of years about these takeover alerts that they get on their phone where you might be in a room and all of a sudden everybody's phone is going off. What are these? These uh, Amber style alerts are called the wireless emergency alerts system. And it's the type of uh, alert that pings every phone in a certain area. Uh, for instance, we recently had a... Um, test of uh, this system in uh, earthquake alert in Oakland, and it, they're able to take uh, certain parameters and ping every phone, every cell phone within that region. And okay, so not just people who lived in that area in Oakland, but actually everyone who's there at the time. Yes, everyone who happens to have a cell phone and is within that area gets a, gets a ping, an alert. Okay, so what is important about these takeover alerts in, in terms of the fire seasons and why why is uh why are all the state emergency responders looking at these well because we've had some pretty hor horrific fires recently the tubs fire the camp fire in both of those fires 
a lot of people, well, most people didn't get alerts. Uh, And although there are cell phone uh, opt-in systems that uh, each county had, uh, in in the case of Sonoma County, they didn't even, uh, they decided not to use the emergency alerts because they were afraid that it would create a panic. I think that was in part the reason. Yeah, they didn't want to go to too wide an area, they said at first. They wanted to be more uh, surgical. Right, right. And as a as a result, a uh, number of people uh, were alerted by the fire, pretty much crackling at their doorstep, and had to flee through flames. Uh, and the campfire, they had their own. They wanted to use their own uh, system, which is called Code Red, and uh, that's also an opt-in system, meaning you have to subscribe to get it. So. Uh, not everyone got the alerts. Uh, they estimate about 60% of the people who were subscribed got those alerts. So what it means is a great many people don't get any alerts unless you're uh, involved in a system like wireless emergency alerts. So there's obviously power in the whole idea of whether you have to opt in or opt out. Are we finding that people uh, with these systems that they have to subscribe to just won't? Yeah, we are finding that. I mean, uh, most estimates are that less than 50% of the people who uh, are in a certain area or a certain county opt into the cell phone opt-in systems. So, you know, a great many people do not uh, subscribe to these uh, alerts. Okay. And where is the state in terms of getting counties on board with making sure that they um, are ready to put out these takeover alerts? Well, uh, Cal OES has set up a uh, guidelines. Uh, in March, they, they listed a bunch of guidelines for counties to uh, adopt this wireless emergency alert system. Uh, that's what they want. Uh, they want the whole state and every county to have a cohesive statewide system, including uh, spelling out responsibilities, defining duties, implementing training. And uh, so they are they've done that. uh, And now it's up to the counties to go ahead, go through with it. Okay. All right. Well, I want to move on to the uh, to the power shutoffs. This is another big aspect of this fire season. For the first time, uh, PG&E is saying that it will shut off power in some cases. Um, what is a power shutoff? Uh, power shutoff is is when PG&E decides to turn off power uh, in a whole uh, a certain area where there are high winds or extremely hot weather, red flag warnings, uh, and it's to prevent uh, sparks to uh, that ca- have caused numerous fires in recent years, including some of the ones we've been talking about. Yeah, in, including uh, the many of the wine country fires and the campfire. So if that's possible, if PG&E can turn off uh, power to, to areas that have high risk, why haven't they done it more in the past and why can't they do it more often? Well, nobody likes to lose power. Uh, residents don't like to u- lose power, but businesses don't like to lose power, and uh, especially hospitals, clinics. Uh, what happens to the respirators in hospitals when you turn off power? Uh, there's a lot of things that that can go wrong, and you know, 
it's it's a loss of money also to businesses when power's out. So it's mainly the the main issue has been uh, public, uh, the public not wanting to do it. And if they turn it off, can they, um, when the danger is over, turn it right back on? Oh, that yeah, you know, they can't. That's the, that's the problem. Uh, uh, you have to check all the lines. You have to uh, drive and physically uh, look at all the lines and make sure there's no sparks when you turn it back on. So it takes a long time. So PG&E crews have to drive up and down these lines. Yes. Make sure there's not a branch or line down in a field. And that's exactly it. Okay. How long um, should people be prepared for one of these shutdowns to last? Well, they tell people to prepare for uh, 48 hours, and it can be longer than that. Um, it de- really depends on the size, uh, the shutoff, uh, the conditions, and how long the conditions last, whether it's still hot, whether winds, winds are still blowing. So uh, it could be a, a long time. Before I let you go, I want to ask you something that a lot of people have have asked the Chronicle about, which is, should I be buying a generator of some sort if I live in an area that might suffer these power shutoffs? Well, that's definitely an option, uh, especially if you're in a high uh, fire prone area. That's something uh, I think that Cal Fire says is a is a good option in those uh, cases. Uh, and uh, it, but it's expensive buying a gas power generator and uh, or or solar power generator, and uh, it requires you to set up your whole house to to accept the power also. So that can be expensive. And Tesla's Powerwall battery, uh, which is one of the major options, also is uh, just alone that costs six thousand seven hundred dollars. So. It's a, it can can uh, reach into your pocketbook. <laughs> okay, and probably not everybody has sixty seven hundred dollars plus all the fees and and installation. Yeah, that can be it can be difficult. All right, well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks to reporters Curtis Alexander and Peter Fimright for joining us. To Libby Coleman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. Uh, thank you. It's been fun. Can I say that again?